Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind, let's roll. We are taking our passage of scripture from Luke chapter two. If you make your way to Luke chapter two, we will uh, be digging into a passage that is in our Anchored in the Word series, which is a two-year Bible reading. If you're new to our fellowship, I'd like to welcome you and let you know that you can not only go to our website and find the Anchored, click on the Anchored icon, and uh, you can have the reading digitally on your phone, or you can pick up a printed version. I think we ran out, and I think we've printed some more up. But we look today at one of those important issues of every generation, but I think even more crucially in our time today where everything is degenerating and disintegrating around the family. So we wanna share with you today how to cultivate godly kids. And I don't know about you, but if you have children or grandchildren, it is the treasure of your heart. You love your kids, you want them to do well even do better than you've done in life. You want them to be able to stand on your shoulders to look farther, to reach farther, to accomplish more, to truly have fulfilling lives. But how do we do that? Just like somebody that has a beautiful garden, there's a cultivation. You have to pull the weeds, you have to water, you have to prune. There's a lot of tending that goes with a garden. Most people get to aspire to be gardeners till they try it for one year and no more. I'm going to Joe Albertson's produce department from now on. Why? Because it's too much work. It's just the weeds and the watering and the weeds never stop. And why is it that you have to plant good plants that grow something, but the weeds just take over if you leave everything alone? And that's what happens to our children left to themselves. So we want to know, first of all, you are as a parent or even as a grandparent in a secondary way of support, you are archers with arrows in your hand. As it says in Psalm 127.4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I have two children, a son and a daughter, and they're like arrows in my hand. And if I want them to do well, I have to aim high so that they can go as far as possible in their walk with God and their walk with people to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, those two great qualities. So realize that you are an archer with arrows in your hand. If you have two children, one children, six children, seven children, maybe you're going for a baseball team, you got nine children, whatever you got, realize that each one of them are an individual arrow that are not all going to be shot in the same direction because each one of them, as it says, uh, the target And the results, as it says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Literally, it means train up a child in the bent in which they have. You may have a child that's pursuing academic pursuits because that's his gifting. You may have one that pursues military giftings because he has a desire to go into service. You may have somebody that has a business acumen, and so you're helping them. Whatever, it's your job to discover their bent and then to bring that influence of God into their life so that they understand how to function in a relationship with God. Because if you don't realize that you have an arrow in your hand as an archer and you don't know the target you're shooting at, how in the world are you going to produce anything of value? 
you have to know what you're doing. Now, I'm not going to be able to get through all of these, but I want to share with you three uh, dimensions of family culture in this passage of Scripture and six dimensions of child development. We won't, for sure, probably get to the eight dimensions of family responsibilities, but this is basically a mini-family seminar for you who have children and if you want to influence them in a good way. Some of you are crushing it with raising your kids in a godly way, even when you couldn't put the bullet points to these individual things because you're walking with the Lord as you'll see in a few moments. But I want you to know as I declare this to you (laughs) that that's not where I came from and some of you didn't either. You were not raised by godly parents. Right, I I got a picture of a guy here on uh, Paramount Ranch. This is a guy that raised me. He was a horse trainer, a bull rider, and a criminal. And uh, just over the hill, anybody that's ever been to a Paramount Ranch, uh, this is the summer of 72, and this is a stud horse, a jumping stud horse by the name of Oki. You can't see it maybe in this picture, but he's got some really cool 70s striped bell bottoms on with his shaved head. Now that shaved head made my mom load up the car at midnight one night with all the kids and leave him for a week or so over here in Agura because he had bet a guy on the Super Bowl, if his team lost, he, he had to shave his head And if the other guy lost, he had to shave his head. This guy was all about bets all through life. So my mom told him when he made the bet, I don't want to be married to a bald guy. Don't make that bet. He had this brown curly lock hair. It's a really, you know, quite, he's quite handsome. She said, I don't want to be married to a bald guy. And he goes, ah, shut up. I don't want to hear what you have to say. So he lost the bet, shaved his head. My mom loaded up the kids and we left him. So uh, that was... uh, she was flying down the dirt road there, there on the Paramount Ranch, and she's hitting these potholes in the car, and our heads are about going through the ceiling, and we're like, Mom, you're going to break the car before we can even get away. And she's going, I don't care, blankety-blank, that's what I think of him and his car. So that's the exciting life that I grew up with. You never knew when you're going to be loaded up in the middle of the night and taken off because somebody shaved their head. Uh, this next uh, flick is him after he stabbed a guy five times, and... Uh, I was in the seventh, starting seventh grade, and this came out in my hometown paper, that this is my, my dad. You should just start seventh grade, and your dad's on the front page for stabbing a guy five times. Right before my mom married him, he had just got out of San Quentin for armed robbery, kidnapping, and a number of things. They met in a bar. What do you expect, right? And so my mom met all of her sweethearts in bars. No, that's not true. Not, my, not the first husband out of four. But... I want you to know, I didn't come from anything that was biblical. I didn't come from any point of reference except brokenness and sin. It's important to say that because when I start talking about biblical principles, people think, oh, you just grew up in a little white cottage with a picket fence with ideal things. No, I grew up in dysfunction junction, so I know the difference from dysfunction junction to God's way. And those are two different things, right? This was the guy that raised me through all my formative years. He was the bane of my existence. He was a total tyrant. And yet, God gave me, once I got saved, God gave me favor for this guy. This is the next picture. This is shortly before he died. This is the old codger. And uh, at, at the end of his life, he, every night when he went to bed, he prayed that Jesus would forgive him of his sins, that he might go to heaven. This is the most criminal, crazy person you've ever met in your life. And that's who raised me. So if you ever wonder, what's wrong with me? (laughs) Right? I got a little PTSD 
from uh, Anthony Martin Hoke. So I contrast those two things because those are two bookends. Some of you came from good families. I'm envious of your upbringing. Some of us came from brokenness. But those who come from brokenness and darkness usually have a greater appreciation for the goodness of God than those who came from the goodness of God because they have no comparison. And that makes you more appreciative, more thankful. It's like those who are forgiven much love much. Those who come from darkness to light. It's like, oh, happy day. It's a glorious day. Well, having said that, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. You made your way, hopefully, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to stand together for the reading of the Word of God. And we are going to read starting in verse 41 through 52 for our message, How to Cultivate Godly Kids. Verse 41. His parents, these are Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing to him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Lord, we pray that your word would be illuminated to us by your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would be the one that teaches us right now these beautiful truths that flow from your life, Lord Jesus, to us, your example to us, that it may be beneficial for our families. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing we see is how to cultivate spiritual rhythm. It says of Jesus' parents in verse 41 that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, this is one of those few increments that we have in Jesus' life. We have his birth in Bethlehem. We have uh, when the wise men came, which appears that Jesus was two years of age because Herod had all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two because he asked the wise men when they saw the star that they had followed. So we have Jesus and the shepherds at his birth. Now we put the nativity all together at the same time, but they were not at the same time. We have the shepherds at his birth in Bethlehem. We have the wise men in Bethlehem at age two. Then they flee to Egypt. Then they go back to Nazareth. And then at age 12 is the next time we see him. And we're not going to see him for another 18 years till he comes on the scene in ministry and is baptized by John the Baptist at the age of 30. So this 12-year mark is very important as we see the development of Jesus, who is God in human flesh, but it gives us examples of the family structure and the family life and what Jesus is emulating for us to follow 
in that example. And the first is, as a family, if you want to cultivate godly kids, you have to first cultivate a spiritual rhythm to your lifestyle. Every year they went to the Passover. There was three times a year that the males, the Jewish males, were required to go to Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and also tabernacles. Now, as they went each year to these feasts, it was a rhythm built in for the spiritual life. Each week was a basically a week-long spiritual retreat. That's on top of their Sabbath observances in the synagogues on Saturday, and we learn later in Jesus' life, as his custom was, he went from the time he was a toddler, basically to Sunday school or to Sabbath, uh, as a Jew would. So the, the family culture, where, where does a child get his rhythm of spiritual influence? From mom and dad. So if mom and dad are inconsistent, will they be cultivating a consistent spiritual cultivation in the child? No. You see, you build in through structure the opportunities. That's what bringing your kids to churches. That's what allowing them to go to a youth retreat. That's what it means to bring them to vacation Bible school. What you're doing is you're building a structure and a culture for the opportunity for your kids to fall in love with Jesus. Right? You can't force it on them, but you're cultivating the opportunities for them to fall in love with Jesus. I was not raised by Christian parents, but my dad at the age of 35 radically got saved. And as soon as he got saved, the first thing he thought of was, oh no, my kids. I hadn't seen my dad in years. But as soon as he got saved, it's like the Lord said of Elijah that when he came and preached, he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. As soon as salvation and redemption comes to an adult with children, usually their first thought is, my kids, because I love them and I want to influence them. So I lived with my dad between the summer of my seventh grade and eighth grade year. My dad was a on-fire Christian, him and his new wife, my stepmom, Carol, who was quite a piece of work. And, uh, you know, I got the redheaded stepchild treatment from her. It was very, uh, you know, love-hate relationship, meaning my dad loved me and she hated me. But besides that, uh, I lived with them. And so when you're in the, an environment, when my dad's around, you know, I'm treated decent. When he's not, I'm not. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the reverse Cinderella story. <laughs> you, you, I'll be out there pulling weeds for the, the wicked stepmom. And, uh, but my dad said, you're living with me this summer. You're going to go to church with me every Sunday. I said, no, I'm not. I don't want to go to church. I want nothing to do with I haven't been raised with this stuff. Like, you're going to, I'm not going. And my dad was very calm. He just said, you're living with this, me this summer, son. You're going to church every Sunday. And uh, I'm like, all right, Pop. All right. I didn't want to do it. And we live in this culture where I'll meet parents, and they got, they got young kids. They got teenagers. They, and they're like, you know, we just let them just, we, we want to love Jesus, but we don't want to force them. We just let them stay at home if they want to you build it. Who's the parent? Your responsibility, as long as they're under your care as minors, is to give them the opportunity, if you want them to grow spiritually, and you want to cultivate spiritual uh, hunger in their hearts, you are going to build structure that gives them opportunities to be exposed to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. That's what your job is, right? Yeah. <clears throat> And it doesn't mean they're going to get, I mean, they have to come to, by their own volition, their own will. Now, my dad, in a desperation to see my brother and I saved, there was an altar call at a church service during that seventh grade year. 
And, and my dad shoved my older brother and I out in the aisle and forced us to go forward. Because, you know, if you can do the altar call, then it's the job done. Now, my brother actually wanted to go because he had committed his life through my grandparents' church at the age of eight. But I was the youngest and the little pagan in the family. I went with my brother was 16 and he was rededicating his life. And so my brother's down there and, and my brother's a tough guy. I mean, he's crying in, in his rededication to Jesus. And I'm looking at him like, come on, man, knock it off. This is embarrassing. They're asking, you don't want to pray for me? I said, well, do what you want to do. I don't know. I don't want to be here. But my dad pushed me down the aisle. You can't force them. But what you can do is give them opportunity. And that last Sunday of that summer was the first time that I got the gospel crystal clear. And I understood it. And I went, oh, snap. Oh, no. Now I know. Now I'm responsible. Without my dad's loving, firm, dragging me to church, I did have a drug problem. I was drug every Sunday, right? He brought me there and I was exposed. So the opportunity now began to haunt me in the back of my head so that the hounds of heaven began to come after me as the years went along to get right with God. That's what it means to cultivate a spiritual rhythm. Joseph and Mary cultivated that spiritual rhythm, not only for Jesus, but all of their families. Jesus has four brothers and multiple sisters, okay? You also have to cultivate a spiritual community of support because it tells us in verse 43, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. You see, their whole, there was a spiritual pilgrimage of all their neighbors and family. You have a whole community that's got this built-in rhythm to seek God. You, there's friends and family and neighbors. They're seeking the Lord. And so a family's job, parents', parents jobs, are to build relationships with family and other community that also have a heart to cultivate godly kids. So who are your best friends? Who are those people that your kids hang out with? And if they're over there, you feel, think they're safe. That's why, you know, they would travel in these, these groups of people. So Mary and jo Joseph weren't worried. He's 12 years of age. And all the people they hang out with have a heart for God, right? So he's cultivating spiritual community. Oftentimes we build community with what's comfortable for us, but it's not always the best spiritual community. You know what I mean? So you have to have that as a part. That's what the beautiful thing of being a part of a local congregation. Maybe you don't have friends or family in the area, but the church begins to be that community in which that influences. My children were growing up in the church. They have these relationships with all of these godly people. You know, my son one day, he's on my staff, and my, my assistant pastor was 14 years old, uh, older than me, my senior, and my son's on staff, and my assistant pastor's on staff, and I'm going home, and we're going to have, I said, hey, son, mom and I are going to have dinner at this time, and he goes, oh, I'm not going to make dinner, pop, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go uh, rock climbing with Gordon. So my son's 16, and he's hanging out with a 56-year-old, right, because he's basically Uncle Gordon. You're building relationships with other people that love God. It's not just a mom and dad that loves God. They see it in other people's lives. Thirdly, you have to cultivate a spiritual hunger for God. Verse 46, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, check this out, both listening to them and asking questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. 
Jesus displays he's comfortable in the midst of a Bible study. He's asking questions. He's giving answers. He's going back and forth. How is that cultivated? Where does that come from? Around your dinner table, in the morning, when you're driving to school, wherever you're going, that's what Deuteronomy 6 says. The way we train our kids is when they rise up in the morning, when you go by a walk, when you lay down at night, you're just talking about God all the time. And various things. It doesn't mean you're forcing. It just means when it comes up. You're not afraid. And parents, can I encourage you, especially when your kids hit this spot. Your kids grow up and you go, I don't know what happened to Johnny. He just loved Jesus all through the Sunday school years. And then, boom, he hit 13. And something happened. What happened is Johnny finally woke up and said, oh. He's become, you know, he's growing in his intellect. He's like, do I follow Jesus because mom and dad do? Or do I want to follow Jesus? And it's the middle ground that they go through, right? If you've ever, some of those transitions are really smooth and you don't even notice them. Some are quite stark in contrast. For both of my children was quite stark. They hit that, and for my son, when he hit about 11 years old, it's just like he woke up. He's super sharp in his mind. He's coming to church, loving God, following, and then it's just that one day he woke up and when he started coming into church, he had a different demeanor about him. His hands are in his pocket. He's really serious. He's thinking to himself. And you can tell the wheels are just like rolling. And I want to share with you just from a husband and wife's perspective. Moms at this moment totally flip. They freak out. Oh no! They don't love God anymore. They're asking questions like, how do we know the Bible's true? How do we know Jesus is real? How do we know? And they start like laying all these questions out. And you most parents just freak and go, how can you even think that? You know, and they just want to cry and get some Kleenex. No, you have to open up to that dialogue and say, well, let's talk about that. Let's press into that. Why do we know? And you start, like, you have to, because if you don't cultivate a positive atmosphere of asking questions and challenging and giving answers, you're not going to cultivate a spiritual hunger because if you just say, shut up because I said so, you know, there's a certain point that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Some of you didn't hear me. That doesn't work. (laughs) A father and a son were having some real problems in his teenage years, and the counselor asked the father and said, well, do you and Pete talk? And he goes, yeah, Pete and I talk all the time. Last night at dinner, he said, Dad, I want a new bicycle. I told him to shut up and eat his peas. See, we talk all the time. (laughs) Just because you're talking does not mean you're communicating. You have to hear their hearts. And I told my kids from the time they were young, There's nothing you can ask me that will scare me, so ask anything you want. There were times when they were young hearing things from their friends about sexuality, and they're so young, and they're asking these things that mom had to leave the room. She just couldn't even handle it. And I'm like, bring it on. Let's talk about that. I mean, if they're hearing about it on the playground, right, they should hear it from dad. Let's talk about that. What's that mean? What's it mean? You know, the whole homosexual thing. What's it mean, the lesbian thing? What's it mean to do this? What's it mean? Because you have to produce an environment, you have to cultivate a culture where you can ask questions, give answers, gain understanding without the fear of being shut down and shut up. Because I promise you, they're gonna go looking for those answers somewhere else, right? So you wanna build that in your family. And my kids to this day will say, we could talk to dad about anything, even if it was scary, right? Anything. My son would try to come up with all these scenarios like to to totally try to freak me out. Dad, you know, 
I know I love Jesus and I'm 16, but if I wasn't loving Jesus, I think I would run a drug cartel. You know what I mean? He would go on this whole adventure like I would be this, you know, crazy criminal. I'm like, okay. And he goes, what would you do then? I said, well, I guess I'd be praying for you, son. What would you do if I killed somebody and went to prison? I said, well, I would pray for you and I guess I would visit you every visitation week, you know, in prison. I just tell him, you know, you, you can't. You have to cultivate that openness. Well, if those are the dimensions to cultivate a family culture, then we see what happens through that process, what comes out of it. We see now the six dimensions of child development that takes place, and Jesus exemplifies them th these things for you and I as families. First, there's a prioritization in verse 49. It says, when they had asked him why he had done these things, said, why do you seek me, Jesus said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? At the age of 12, Jesus looked at his mom and dad and said, I'm serving God. <laughs> right, so he's gained this priority of, you know what the most important thing, mom and dad, in my life? Is being about my father's business. It's about serving God. So that's, that's more caught than taught. You could tell a kid, you need to make Jesus number one. But it's more caught by them seeing it in your life. My kids caught from me and their mother, our love for Jesus was number one, paramount. And they caught that, and so when we talked to them, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you, they realize, oh, if I prioritize my relationship with God, the other struggles in my life, God will help me with, and they'll work out and fall into place. But what we do is try to solve all the problems in our life and whatever's left over in our life, give God a little time on Sunday. It doesn't work that way in a real relationship. When you seek Jesus first, he's gonna work out. You know all the other things that are in your heart to, you want to see them happen? You put Jesus first and all that will fall into place according to his will. And when you teach a kid to prioritize his relationship with God above all things, his life is going to take on an order and a fruitfulness and a meaningfulness and a purpose and a strength and a solid foundation of life that it becomes unshakable. Because you see, the first priority is not even mom and dad. The first priority is loving God. And when the Lord is number one, even when you get into the marriage, the Lord is number one. But what we do as parents is we prioritize everything else so the kids don't think Jesus is number one in their parents' life or their family's life. You know, money is, or expensive vacations, or work is, or this is, or that. I mean, there's a whole list, right? Just make the list. But when the prioritization shines through that the Lord is the Lord of your life, you can communicate that verbally, but most families are communicating with their actual lifestyle, with what's important. Everybody knows what your priorities are if they hang out with you for a month. Everybody. How much more your kids who live in the same household. Secondly, there's a, the second dimension is relationally. We want to cultivate this. Cultivate submission through authority. For it says in verse 51, then he went down with them after they had this little conversation. Hey, you stressed your, uh, your dad and I out. Why'd you do that? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Hey, I'm just serving God. In verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. 
Jesus relationally had to figure out this relationship as a 12-year-old with adult parents, how to submit to them. He was subject to them. It means he submitted to their authority. Now, this had to be the craziest parent-child relationship in human history. He's the son of God in human flesh, and we're raising him, right? Do we give him an allowance? I'm not sure, right? How's that work out in the heavenly reward? I, you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of bizarre things here, but let me just break it down into a very human element for you and I to take something productive home, and that is every child first learns this responsibility at home, how to submit to authority in a respectful way. And Jesus models this for us in a way that Jesus is perfect and truly is sinless. He's sinless. Are his parents sinless and are his siblings sinless? No. So Jesus is gonna submit to imperfect people, mom and dad. Your children's first experience with injustice, unfairness, and skewed values is gonna be from an imperfect mom and dad. Right, you and me. You're not perfect. Kids grow up trashing their parents. Oh, they're this and that. You always just smile and say, you're going to have some kids one day. And you are not going to be perfect. And they're going to talk about you the same. Oh, no, I'm going to, everything I've learned. I'm, no, no. You're a broken, flawed person that's going to do the best you can with what you got. I was raised by off-the-hook dysfunctional people. They did the best they could with what they got. I, can I be bitter at them? Because what kid could say, I am perfect, I know all you teenagers think you are, and your parents are totally out of touch with reality. It's like Mark Twain said. He said, I was so surprised how much my parents had learned between my age of 15 and 25. It's like they learned a whole bunch. No, it's finally he caught up to what his parents knew, (laughs) right? Because about 15, you get a bad case of the know-it-alls. You know it all. And you just smile as a parent. the world is just going to knock the tar out of you. <laughs> You're going to go to work. And what, what's going to happen? You're being raised by imperfect people, and one day you'll be an imperfect parent. You're going to go to a school with an imperfect teacher, and you've got to submit to her. You're going to go to work for an imperfect boss, and you've got to submit to them. You're going to, go to, uh, you're going to play on a team with an imperfect coach. There's going to be unfairness and injustice and all kinds of opportunities for you to get bitter and angry and mad. Or you can submit and trust God through it and grow in your understanding of submission and authority. Why do kids today, why are they so lost? Because they have not discovered, because parents no longer are parents. They haven't discovered how to grow up under authority and submit to imperfect people. Everybody I've ever worked for, the home I came from, every coach I've ever played for, we're all imperfect people that do, didn't do the things that I thought they should have done. How about you? And what I have to do, I either submitted or got kicked off the team. I submitted or got kicked out of school. I submitted or, it's interesting, a respectful, submissive attitude goes a long way in an imperfect environment of anything structured. If you're in the military, there's officers that are good officers that are easy to submit to, and there's lousy officers that are total jerks. And it is like, it's like dog years. Every day is like seven years with this person, right? And you're going to have people like that. Who has to learn that? All children. All children. You have to learn that. Jesus models that for us 
to discover because you're, I want you to know, and we'll get to it uh, hopefully, uh, maybe not, but the Lord says that if you'll do two things as a kid, by your actions, obey your parents, and by your attitude, honor your parents, it will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. Those are two promises. You know this, check this out. If you will obey your parents and have a respectful attitude, life's gonna go well with you on the family vacation. But if you're, dis, if you're in your actions, you're disobedient and your attitude stinks, it's gonna be the longest seven days of family vacation you've ever had, right? Because it's gonna be a nightmare. Well, that's true on the football team, that's true at the college classroom, and it's true in the executive suite at the corporation. These two dynamics that you discover in relational uh, obedience and honoring in a respectful way to authority, you are either going to excel in life and do very well, or you are going to do lousy, and it's always everybody else's fault. You ever met one of these people with a chip on their shoulder? It was the coach's fault, it was the boss's fault, it's their parents' fault, it's their wife's fault. Have you ever noticed, you know, the common denominator in all these things are you? Right, the common scenario here is always you. It's unfair, I got a chip on my shoulder, because you never figured it out, man. You're 45 years old and you haven't figured it out why the boss will not give you a raise. Because you won't simply do what you're told in a respectful way. That's simple, right? But the guy that does, he just keeps getting promoted and promoted and promoted. It's going well with him. Fourthly, or thirdly, we see that there's an intellectual uh, cultivation in Jesus' life. Cultivate learning and effort. It says Jesus increased in wisdom. This, we're gonna talk about Usually we look at wisdom as the right application of the knowledge of God. But in this context, we're just going to talk about intellectual uh, growing in your mind. We're to love God with all of our mind as well, because we're going to get to the spiritual growth, which has to do in favor with God. So you cultivate in your family through reading and learning a, a hunger for learning. And Jesus increased. He's here among scholars asking them questions, giving answers, trying to gain understanding because he's got a hunger to learn. We make a mistake in our culture with what's called global praise. Now, global praise is, honey, you know, Americans are great at building self-esteem in their kids that gets them nowhere. California high schoolers are ranked number one in self-esteem in America and like 49th in scholastics. We're awesome. Your tests say you suck. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. No. You, you haven't, somebody's told you these things, but you don't actually have a love for learning. Once you foster in your family a love for learning, books and reading and learning, and you extol effort expended, not accomplishments. These are two different things. So let's say you're, 45 years old, you're at the top of your game in whatever you're gonna do, and you get an opportunity to learn a new job. Eight out of 10 people are not gonna take that opportunity because they don't wanna fail and learn the new thing because they've reached success. Because they've always thought that they're praised for accomplishment rather than effort expended. By meaning that if you say, the person that loves learning goes, oh, I get to learn something new. I'll take it on. You have to cultivate that. 
Because the person that is only accomplishment oriented never wants to lose what they've achieved because they get so much praise about what they've achieved. But if you praise effort instead of achievement, your kids will have a love for always learning. They do this little test. There's a book, Emotional Intelligence, you can check it out. And uh, there's another one called Mindset. And these two books uh, kind of unpack some information that studies have discovered. Like you take a puzzle, like here's a hard puzzle, you've never done it. Kids that have done a puzzle at this level and they're really good at that puzzle, when they're offered a new challenging puzzle, they usually don't want to do it because they have accomplishment and praise here. But the kids that are trained to uh, ex explore and love learning and effort, they smack their lips and clap their hands and go, well, I want to see the new puzzle. You see, they're two different things. Parents will tell their kids, you can be anything you want. Well, if Johnny's 5'6 and 130 pounds, he is not going to be an NFL lineman, okay? That's just the way it is. He can be involved somehow in the NFL, maybe the, the front office or the water boy. Or, I mean, the things that people tell their kids are so disconnected from reality. But cultivate a love for learning. Number four, physical cultivation, it says in Luke 2.52, that Jesus grew in stature. Now, we know growing in stature is the natural process of good nutrition, good exercise, good rest over time, and your body is just going to reach the genetic potential that is in your DNA, right? I mean, that's true. But you can produce a, a culture within your family that is healthy, that is active, and not, you know, the TV and video games are the ba best babysitter, bar none, in, an, in the world, right? Turn on the TV. Put a kid in front of it, eight hours, drool, snacks, drool, snacks. And we raise a culture that is inactive. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for those things and they don't work uh, in, in limited ways. I'm just saying you have to produce an active, healthy lifestyle in your kids, that they are not only growing intellectually, but they're also challenging their body. What can they accomplish in, in physical things and effort? And all these things are what parents want for an overall, even if they don't know how to articulate it somehow, they want their kids to learn submission to authority in a respectful way. They want them to grow intellectually. They want to, them to expand what they can accomplish physically. But I think in this age, like no other, it's so important to cultivate a proper view of your kid's self, right? Who are you as a teenager? There's nothing more awkward than right before you're prepubescent and then you go into puberty, right? There's the most, any of you want to relive that over again? Please raise your hand. We would like to know why you would like to be tortured all over again. I mean, your body's going from childhood into adolescence, and your hormones are freaking out, and your face is breaking out, and, right? It's, just, it's, it's this awkward place. But when you constantly reaffirm to your kids what uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, for you formed me, formed my uh, inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has created you, male, female, with all of the attributes. There's, there's nobody that I know that doesn't have some aspect of their physical nature in which they really despise. Like, I wish my, my nose was smaller or bigger. I wish I didn't have these big ears. I wish, you know, I didn't have, when I grew up, I went through this really awkward stage because I was a very, very late bloomer. And because I was a late bloomer, when I graduated high school, I was 5'10 and 140 pounds. 
I grew three inches out of high school. And so I'm now 6'2 and 215 pounds. But the, the late bloomer, that, that dynamic, I was about 5'8". And then what happened, you know your body does this, my hands grew to full size in my feet, but the rest of my body didn't. So then my friends who, I don't know if you should call them friends, I had merciless friends. Like they would pick out whatever your physical attribute was that was obvious and they would humiliate you publicly nonstop. These are my friends. And so one day we were watching a, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, the TV's on, we're not really paying attention, but it's one of these uh, Animal Kingdom shows, and there's this lizard with big feet and, and hands that hung like this, that his feet were webbed, and he could run on top of water, almost like, and so, and, and so this was what my friends teased me with for the next two years of high school. There's Rick. <laughs> and I would look at my big hands and my big feet, it's like, can I do anything about it? No. Is it awkward? Yeah. Is it humiliating? Yeah. And what parents forget, I mean, honestly, parents forget the emotional heartache that goes on in that season where you're, you're mocked and you're ridiculed and, oh, you'll just grow, you know, you'll grow through I mean, you ought to have a little bit more empathy for your kids through that awkward spot. Kind of remember back what was going on. And if you have empathy for your kids, it goes a long ways for them to be able to share their hearts and, and what's going on with their friends and what's going on with school and, and all of these dynamics because you want to cultivate, hey, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God's, that's, God has not made a mistake with you. And, and he's going to bring you into a place of maturity. I used to tell my mom because all my siblings, the older three siblings, they all... They, genetically, they were just like the brown side of my family, my dad's side of the family. They all had dark hair. They all had the same kind of teeth. And then I came along, and I was this blonde-haired kid. And because I grew up to look like the Jones side of my family, my mom's side of the family. So I was the unique one. So all my siblings, they called me the milkman's kid. So I grew up from the time I was like three going, what's that mean that I'm the milkman's kid? And, and I would go to my mom and she would roll her eyes, you're your father's son, because you see, my mom and dad had me after he got a vasectomy, like two months later. And so it was the big family drama because they didn't want any more kids. So my dad was so torqued that he paid the doctor and it didn't work. But because I looked differently and because of the nature and the timing that it happened, my siblings like nonstop would rib me about being another man's kid. And my mom assured me it's not true. And then as I grew older, my face looked just like my dad's. So it's like, oh, genetically, you know. It. But when you're growing up with all of these different inputs in your life, you're not, you're not sure who you are. You're already insecure, especially if you're coming from a broken family. Once I, started, once I went through divorce after divorce after divorce with my mom, you get this sense of anxiety inside of yourself as a kid that no matter what's going right right now, in a few moments it's gonna go bad. And you live with this haunting. I had it all my, my whole life. Everything's right right now, that means something's about ready to go wrong. Because it always goes wrong. I have this track record that it always goes wrong. And there's this brokenness that you're struggling with. There's this brokenness that you're feeling inside of you. You don't even know how to put it into words. You don't even know how to articulate it. And you're looking at your kids raising them through that process 
Because many of you have, you know, multiple marriages, multiple kids, step, you know, I have, I have step siblings and step uh, brothers and sisters and all the different things. And you're trying to navigate, and how do you have, ultimately, how does your kid be comfortable in their own skin? Is your son, is your daughter, through this journey, are they discovering how to be comfortable in their own skin with their relationship with God? And it starts not with a self-esteem, but a Christ-esteem or a God-esteem that God looks at you and you are the apple of his eye, and there you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And everything he's created you for, you are going to be able to accomplish, even though right now, as I would tell my mom, is this short runt that would not grow. I'm like, Mom, when am I going to grow? She would tell me the same thing. Oh, honey, if you eat good and you exercise and you get your rest, over time you're going to grow. That doesn't work for a 14-year-old that's struggling, right? So to be empathetic in this process, but there's a physical development. Also spiritual growth, obviously, number five, Cultivate a love for God. And Jesus, and in favor with God. Jesus grew in his favor with his relationship with God, so much so that he also uh, said, I must be about my father's business. How do you cultivate a spiritual growth in your children? As we talked about earlier, a rhythm, but more importantly, a daily walk is more modeled than you know, when they're young, how, how do you begin to talk about Jesus? How, do you pray with them at night? Do you read Bible stories? Whatever those things might be. I had a, the day my son was born, I bought a picture Bible and a football. And uh, two things, you know, I, I love Jesus and I couldn't wait to play football with my son. Now it's going to be a long time. You realize how, I mean, infants don't do a lot for a very long time, right? But I would go through but once my son was old enough to just have cognitive awareness and be able to communicate, we started going through his, this picture Bible. And he loved this picture Bible. And I would just go through story after story. about the picture Bible that's three years of David C. Cook's Sunday school curriculum, but in a binder as a picture Bible. I bought that. And then my daughter came along. And then we wore it out because of my daughter. So we bought a second one. And then the first one, we had worn the cover right off the thing. And the second one, I would just went through it. So when my son was in his 20s, he's married, he's moved out, he's a pilot. One day he's down in our basement and he's rummaging around because he kind of likes old, he's nostalgic. And he goes, hey, he comes upstairs and he's got the, we had both of them still, the picture Bible that the cover fell off and the other one that was really worn out. And he comes upstairs and he goes, hey, look, my picture Bibles. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Because, you know, that season's way gone for me. And uh, we're talking for a while and he gets ready to go home and he puts those under his arm and he's taking I said, what are you doing? Those pictures, he goes, these are mine. I'm taking these. Because the investment through those years for him and, a, and, a, and his sister, it comes from a mom and dad spending time with your kids. My wife was in bed with my son when he was three years old, and she was talking about Jesus, and they're going through the picture Bible and what Jesus did on the cross, dying for his sins and rising from the dead, and that he'll forgive you of your sins. You know, when you do bad things, you know, like last week when you clubbed your sister in the head with a toy. He's like, yeah, I remember that. You know, because kids know, I mean, from the, at, at that age. And she's like, you want Jesus to forgive you of your sins and receive him into your heart? And he goes, yeah, how do we do that, Mom? He's like, well, let's pray. And so they prayed. And my son at the age of three receiving Christ because he can't remember that point like his mother can as an adult, he never remembers not knowing Jesus, even though his, praise the Lord. But all of those things come from, all those things come from the investment that you make in your children. Nobody's gonna, the Sunday school teacher, the youth group leader, and the preacher are not going to tuck your kids in every night at bed 
or get up in the morning and have breakfast with them. So you have to somehow, and I'm not saying these are the things to do, I'm just throwing out ideas. Somehow you have to invest in your kids, but if you do it early, it's easier. We would have, you gotta be at the fireplace at 6.30 in the morning, Monday through Friday for school. At 6.30 in the morning, they have to be at the fireplace. Idaho, it's cold in the winter. You gotta meet at the fireplace, get your bowl of Cheerios or whatever we're having for breakfast, and we would read a chapter in the Proverbs. Everybody read a verse. I read a verse. Mom read a verse, my son wrote a verse, my daughter read a verse, and we did that till the chapter was over. And then everybody had to pick their favorite verse of the day. And then we'd each close in a brief prayer. What, you know, I got a test, you know, I got a math test today, or, you know, so-and-so's uh, been mad at me and my classmate. And we would pray about those things. And that's just how we had devotions each morning. So by the time we got to the place that my, my son is in is, is like, you know, 15, he, he's, he's totally blown off our devotions because he's reading through the whole Bible in a year. Like, it's like, oh, you guys, what you're doing is just not that serious. You know what I mean? And, and so you, you're giving this love and this, this opportunity to see your love for God in your home. If, I just want you to know, dads, moms, if they don't see your love for Jesus, it means nothing to them what they see in church. Nada, zilch, zip. Somebody asked my son one day about his spiritual life with Jesus and this and that. And he's like, you know, youth group, youth pastors, church. He said, it's never done as much for me as seeing my dad on Monday morning love Jesus. He said, I know people have marriage seminars and various things, and I know what the Bible says about marriage, but see, I don't learn how to love my wife as a husband. He's been married for 15 years. I didn't learn how to love my wife from the scriptures. I learned it from watching my dad love my mom. You see, a lot of stuff is caught, and then some things are taught. And those are the things that we're trying to invest in our kids, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We don't do any of these things perfectly. My, ha my kids have a long list of things that I did wrong and mom did wrong, just so that you know. We're not perfect parents, and they will tell you that. That's why I don't invite him to come speak. <laughs> he has a long list, and dad did this, and dad did that, and dad lost it here. So I don't wanna portray some kind of like ultra, hyper, super spiritual thing, because I was a broken guy, my wife was a broken person that fell in love with Jesus and we did the best we could with what we had. That's all we had. And the last thing is we see here is this social cultivation. So if I'm growing, we're, we're wanting to cultivate a, a love for God, but then also socially cultivate a love for people and in favor with God and men. Teaching your children how to interact and be a blessing to others, right? You send them over to somebody's house, what are you saying? Now I want you to use your manners, I want you to say please, and I want you to say thank you, you're training them on all this stuff. And uh, uh, their friends come over, you have to teach them how to share. This is the thing that, me, that blows me away, that people do not believe that every person has a fallen sinful nature. I'm like, just come to our Sunday school with the two-year-olds and we will prove it to you. They would kill each other physically if there was not adult supervision. If they weren't, you know, so little. They got, they got toys as clubs and they're all selfish. This, you can watch this happen. 
The first kid is there. The entire Sunday school room is filled with toys along the wall. But the first child picked a toy in the middle of the room, and the next two to three-year-old walks in, looks at all the toys in the whole room, and then he looks at the one they have. And that's the one he wants. You have to teach your kids to share. Do you have to teach your kids to lie? No, they come wired to lie. They're lying through their teeth from the time they can start talking. They're blaming it on their brother or their sister or I didn't do it or, you know, I didn't eat the cookies with chocolate chips on their face, whatever it is. They come lying, they come stealing, they come selfish. And what you have to do is teach them to share and to be kind and to be willing to uh, allow their friends the same time on the bicycle when they come to visit to, to learn how to share. And then when they go hang out with kids that haven't learned, their parents haven't taught them any of these things, and it's basically like this uh, <laughs> terrible anarchy in the home, they come back going, I don't want to go back over there. I don't want to, it's like, it's like crazyville over there. Because the, the prisoners are in charge of the prison. Mom and dad are not in charge of the prison, right? And my kids would come back and say, I, I don't ever want to go back to that house again. So we're cultivating all these things, and this is where they're going to learn it. Where are they going to learn it? If your kids do well, and so the greatest compliment that you can ever give your children, if somebody asks about your 30-year-old son or daughter, and that's what you're raising kids for. When you're looking at the three-year-old, you're thinking, what am I investing in them so when they're 30, what kind of person are they? I want to be able to, in the simplest way, when somebody asks me about my son, I want to say, he is a good man that loves God that would bless your life if you knew him. And, uh, or, or my daughter, either one. But oftentimes we want to put forth all their accolades, what they've accomplished. But honestly, the greatest thing is I just want my daughter to be a wonderful woman that loves God and loves people. That's it. I'm not, look, I used to tell my kids when they were little, I don't care what you do, just love God and everything else will work out. I don't care, I'd tell my son, I don't care if you want to be a garbage man and it looks cool, you know, hanging on the side of the truck and going from, you know, house to house, I'm into it. As long as you just love Jesus more than anybody else on the garbage crew, that, that would be such a blessing to me. But parents elevate achievement over godliness. Godliness and goodness is the thing that will bless you as a parent as the years go on. That's what will bless you. When I get to spend time with my kids, they're both in their 30s, what a blessing to see God's work in their life. And they were raised by very broken, flawed, messed up people. As I said, I'm not giving them a microphone. They may not speak to you. But I tell them myself in my own failures. I did the best I could with what I got. One day they're going to have to raise their kids and they're going to do the best they can with what they got. And their kids are going to be critical of them just like my kids were critical of me and like you're critical of your own parents. Correct? It's a vicious cycle. It just goes round and round and round. It is possible in a dark, wicked age to cultivate godly kids by God's grace. Even when the people doing the job got their own issues and their own problems. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Pray that you would do a work by your spirit and with your incredible kindness.
to us. Lord, we know who we are, and we are far from perfect. We are far from having it all wired. We are, Lord, you, thank you that you work for these, through these jars of clay. Lord, you put your treasure inside of us. And, and Lord, we pray that our children and our grandchildren would see the slightest glimpse of our love for you and that they would be inspired to follow you and discover your goodness just as we have discovered your goodness. And Lord, we pray that you'd be merciful to a thousand generations of our children for simply the promise of us loving you and surrendering our lives to you. I pray that you would comfort those who are brokenhearted here today with where they're at right now in this season with their kids. That you would comfort them, that you would bring hope to their hearts, and that they would be assured, Lord, you're still working. You're still working in in their lives, no matter how dark it might look right now, you're still working, Lord, to draw them close to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 now worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa. I will keep my heart seeking.